You can open in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. I've been having trouble trying to figure out how to preach a whole chapter in under 50 minutes, so I decided I would try two and a half chapters this week. But good, good, the, the, the good news for you is that I found in, in my preparation that I just can't, um, not right now, maybe one day. So what we're going to do is we're going to take two weeks to look at Proverbs chapter 5, the end of Proverbs chapter 6, and Proverbs chapter 7. So we'll, this will be like those texts. Part one. I was struck uh, a few years ago listening to Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. You know, he was recording his sermons kind of in the beginning of recording technology, and you can find those sermons online. Um, but I was struck by the fact that these are old, old sermons, but they're they're relevant to today. Some of those, it's as as if he preached them yesterday. I remember listening to one on Proverbs chapter 2, verse 8, and I'm not sure how he got there from, or no, Ephesians chapter 2. And he said, the, the one who trusts in the statesman or the politician is a fool. And I thought, man, you could preach that today. But it wasn't, it wasn't Lloyd-Jones's like unique style, I think, that, that makes him contemporary to today. It's just true, I think, because he just handled the word, and he just sort of exposed the word, and it's God's word that's actually timeless. And that's how I think about our, our text this morning. Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7, it's as if, if you didn't know when it was written, you might think it was written specifically for this generation. You know, in, in some ways, lots have changed in the 3,000 years since Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. But as we look at the instruction he gives to his son, we see that there truly is nothing new under the sun. And the thing that, that I've enjoyed as we've walked through Proverbs, we're trying to get through Proverbs 1 through 9 the, this summer. That's our goal. And the thing that I've enjoyed as we walk through the book of Proverbs is that Proverbs deals with life as it is. Proverbs imparts the sort of wisdom that doesn't dodge hard texts or difficult topics. And so what we have in Proverbs chapter 5 is a father, Solomon, imploring his son to stay on the path of wisdom and so avoid the soul-crushing consequences of falling for this woman he calls the strange woman, the foreign woman, the adulteress. Let's read. I want to read chapter 5 because our our structure will come from chapter 5 over the next couple weeks. And then what we're going to do is we're going to lean on chapter 6 and chapter 7 to fill in some of these details. So I want to read all of chapter 5, and then we'll hop into uh, the text here. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden wo woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not, do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors, labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, 
and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or, or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your, your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be into intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. All right, a couple things as we dive into the text. I, I recognize we've got a broad range of, of ages in our congregation. I want to assure parents that I'll seek to be as appropriate and tasteful as, uh, as possible. Secondly, I want to ask this question. Before we sort of dive into the, the, the nature of this strange woman, the adulteress, we should stop and ask, is this text then applicable to all of us? You've got a man who's tempted by this strange woman. Some have looked at the text and they've dismissed the teaching as, as that's unfair and it's, it's inapplicable. Why has it got to be a strange woman? Why can't it be a strange man? You know, we know from our, from our experience, you can read the old, find this in the Old Testament, it's oftentimes men who are pursuing uh, women like this adulteress. So, well, we need to keep the, the context of Proverbs in mind. That this is a father writing to his son. That's why the seductress is a woman. right? So as we walk through this, know that, that God's word is indeed profitable for us all here. And it does indeed challenge us in, in both directions. Women should not entice others, should not entice men to sin. And men should not be drawn into adultery and vice versa. right? So as we walk through this, know that this is applicable to all of us. This doesn't give men the right to act like the adulteress because he's addressing the strange woman. All right. So let, let's begin in uh, the beginning of chapter five there. See if we can first make sense of sexual temptation. Our first point is this. Fighting sexual immorality with wisdom means understanding temptation. We see that in the first six verses by now, we're pretty familiar with the, these introductory appeals from the father to the son, right? Every, every section of Proverbs that started with this, my son, hear wisdom, my son, be attentive to my words, my son, listen to my commands. The pattern is becoming more and more familiar to us. And that's what we get in the opening verses of chapter 5. Be attentive to wisdom. Hear Wisdom Again, to be attentive is to, to do more than just hear with your ears. It's, it's for it to sink down into your heart. Right? If you're just joining us for, for the first time, if you hasn't been, haven't been with us through the book of Proverbs, know that we've been defining wisdom this way. It's what this father is imparting to his son because it's what the son needs to live a life that's consistent with the will of God. 
we've demonstrated over and over and over again that, that the Father just serves as sort of the mouthpiece of God. He's not giving his own wisdom. He's not giving his own commands. He's relaying to his Son the wisdom that allows the Son to walk in the will of God. We've said wisdom is that insight into the way that God has made his world that equips a person to live God's way in God's world for God's glory or equips a person to live in a way that pleases God. It is that understanding into God and to his word and to his will that lets a person see that God's will and plan is always good and never detrimental. And it gives us the will then to seek to carry it out. And ultimately, this need for wisdom, it's a need that we all have. None of us have arrived. Old, old age does not automatically equal wisdom. None of us have arrived. We all lack wisdom in some sense. We need to learn it. We need to pursue it. We need to grow in it. And we need to glean it from God's very words. And so again, the Father's wisdom is simply God's wisdom coming through Him to the Son. We learn in our text that the Son must be somewhere near where He's thinking about the age of marriage, which would probably be younger than what we would typically, you know, He's probably in His teenage years, near the time where He would marry. And so this, the Father's imploring Him to stay away from this strange woman. But notice the result of paying attention, right? In verse 1, he says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ears to my understanding. Why? What's the result? That you may keep discretion. That he may, we said that word discretion means like knowing the ropes. It's to skillfully handle the ropes on a ship, right? So that you may know the ropes of how life works and, and then respond in ways that glorify God to the various pressures and trials and temptations of life. If you hide wisdom, you, you, you can guard discretion and you can please God in this life. Then he says, and your lips may guard knowledge. In other words, hiding wisdom in your heart, then, then your lips speak that which is good and right and true. God's wisdom will pour forth from your lips because you have guarded this wisdom in your heart. So it's interesting that then as he's sort of driving at the son's speech, and then he contrasts it in verse 3 with the speech of the forbidden woman. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. The reason that the son should do what he says in verses 1 and 2 is that he might avoid the woman who, whose lips are dripping with honey. In other words, if he, if he hides wisdom within, if he knows God, loves God, trusts God's word, and believes that it is good and true, then he will recognize the, the sort of alluring words of the adulterous woman because it, what, what's in his heart and what escapes his mouth is truth. He will pick up on the fact that her words and his words are in conflict. Right? God's word has come down from above, and this woman comes in, and she's speaking disruptive words, and he will recognize them as, as harmful and, and dangerous. So he speaks wisdom, but she speaks folly. Right? We, we get the example of this in Joseph's life. Right? When, when Potiphar's wife comes to him and says, come, sleep with me. And he says, no. He says, well, how can I sin against my God in this way? So what does Joseph do? He actually speaks in that moment. 
He speaks wisdom. He speaks truth. So there's this vertical wisdom that comes from God through the channel of the Father. And what the Father points out is you must be able to identify this sort of speech that's in conflict with God's wisdom, with sound wisdom. This is in conflict. We've talked about this strange woman before. She came up in Proverbs chapter 2. We argued that like strange or, or foreign doesn't necessarily mean that she was a, a foreigner in Israel, right? In fact, the, the woman in, in chapter 5 has just said, I've come from the temple. I've just offered my sacrifices. So it doesn't necessarily mean that she's a foreigner to Israel. It's that she acts outside the covenant of Israel. She's broken the covenant of her God. We saw that she's forsaken her wedding vows, failed to honor her commitments to her husband and to her God. She has forsaken the companion of her youth, and she forgets the covenant of God. She's, she's foreign in that sense. She's strange in that sense. And so she's like the one who would seek to lead this son away with lustful and enticing words. So the father comes and says, beware of these lips that drip honey, that are this mouth that is smoother than oil. So then what does this, how can we recognize this? All right, how can we recognize this? Well, the first thing I think we need to be aware of is flattery. Right? I think that's implied with the, the, the honey dripping, the mouth smoother than oil. Also, you can look over in chapter 6, verse 24, similar sort of language there. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Also in chapter 7, verse 5, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Well, those words are like given expression in, in Proverbs chapter 7. So again, we're trying to kind of take these together, similar, similar uh, text, similar topic. And so what, what chapter 7 really contributes to the flow of Proverbs is he's warned against the forbidden woman. He's sort of described the forbidden woman. And in chapter 7, Solomon's standing out. He's looking at, out the window, and he sees a man heading down the path to destruction. He sees a man heading towards sexual sin and sexual immorality. And he sort of gives expression, he gives voice to the woman's words, particularly there in verse 15. I have come to meet you, she says to the young man who's wandered into her path, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Right? She makes it all about the, the, the son, she makes it all about this young man. And it is, it's enticing to, to want to be the object of someone else's desire. It plays to our pride that remains in our hearts. And it's interesting to me that before Solomon addresses her beauty, right? He'll get that, to that in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25. Don't, don't take her beauty into your heart. He, before he even gets to how beautiful this woman may be, he starts with warning the son against flattery, against flattering words. And for some, it's not the appeal to beauty as much as it is to the flattery that serves as kind of this initial snare. And this is why wisdom then is such a necessity. Because we've been arguing that wisdom only comes as our hearts are reoriented to the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
We must fear God with a humble reverence and love for Him. And so if we can only approach love, or if we can only approach God in humility, that's the sort of humility that can protect our hearts from these, these words that sort of play on our pride. It's a protection against flattery. Secondly, stay there in verse uh, in chapter seven. We find words of what I say. You've got words of fan- flattery. We have words of fantasy. Look there. Look at the way she speaks there in verse sixteen. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with er- myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. So as the father listens in on this conversation that this young man is engaged in, this naive man, he sees that the woman meets him, she, she kisses him, she flatters him, and then she begins to describe what her home is like. There in verse 21, as well, chapter 7, with much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. So it's not only her flattery, but her seductive talk that lures him away. She speaks of fine linens on her couch and these spices. And and this young man, Solomon says in chapter 7, like an ox going towards the slaughter, he follows. There's another thing she promises, right? There's words of flattery. There's words sort of playing on on the fantasy of, of the naive young man. And third, she promises great pleasure and satisfaction. Look there in chapter 7, verse 18. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Right? So the father's trying to hold out the the truth of of the pain of sexual sin. And she's saying, come, let us delight ourselves in love. Let Let us delight in one another. Right? If she were honest, she would say, hey, come, let us let us destroy ourselves. Let us head towards the grave. Let us head towards Sheol. But she shades the truth, calling this relationship, she's trying to draw this young man away into love. Also there in chapter 7, she she talks of what we might call consequence-free opportunity. Look in verse 19. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come. So the seductress sets out to sort of undermine the fears and doubts of this this young man. And again, I just remind you, this text is applicable both ways, right? But she's saying, my husband will not be there. He's gone on a long business trip. He's not going to return for several more weeks. When the moon's full, that probably means like he travels by the light of the moon, right? So he's not going to be traveling in the dark. So we've got all this time. He'll never know. We can just steal away this one night. No one will be the wiser. And so what Solomon recognizes, and he's trying to implore his son, these sort of words are, are powerful. Right? But, but we should probably pause for a second and say, why? Why are these sort of words powerful? Why doesn't Solomon just say, just say no? Right? That's what we were taught in school. All you have to do is just say no. It was, okay, trying to understand human behavior apart from categories like man and sin, that's the world's solution. Just don't do it. Well, they don't understand the heart. 
Right? They don't understand Proverbs 4.23 that we looked at last week. Guard your heart with all diligence, or above all, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. So Solomon knows he can't look at his son and say, just buckle down and say no. Because Solomon knows that our hearts are not naturally bent towards walking the path of righteousness, walking the path of wisdom. He admitted as such last week when he told us to guard our hearts because our hearts want to to go the natural way of the heart, which is the way of the flesh. So he's arguing in Proverbs chapter 4 to fill your heart with God's wisdom because out of your heart flow the issues of life. Solomon understands something of the nature of the heart and the nature of temptation. He understands something of what James really clearly lays out for us in James chapter 1, verse 14. But it's not just the opportunity that creates temptation, but it's something in your heart that longs for that and desires that that actually creates the temptation. But each person, James says, is tempted when he is lured and enticed, not by the adulterous woman, but by his own lust. Right? The woman there is just the occasion. But if there, if there is no lust there, then the occasion does not present itself as a problem for the man. But Solomon knows that our hearts are, are deceitfully wicked above all things. They're desperately sick. Who can understand them? And even after a, a, a person is regenerated, made alive, that we still wrestle with these desires of the flesh, passions of the flesh. So even as the temptation looks completely outward... We understand that the real battle is waged within at the level of the heart. The words of the woman, again, are are the occasion for the temptation, but the temptation itself arises from our sinful hearts. So it's no surprise, then, that God oftentimes will use this idea of adultery to categorize what, what Israel did as idolatry. Right? It was because their hearts are being drawn out after strange gods. He calls that spiritual adultery. It's to be drawn away to idols. It's to be unfaithful to Him. And so it is, as, as, we, as the, again, the New Testament sort of fills in the gaps here for us, so it is with sexual sin. It is idolatrous desire. It is to covet in Ephesians chapter 5. It is to idolize something and so desire something that God has not been pleased to give you in the moment, right? In our text, it's it's a married woman. God has not seen fit to make her, her your wife, so you're coveting something that's not yours, right? That's sexual sin is coveting. It is to idolize what God has not been uh, pleased to give you, and it is then to be willing to sin against God to go get it. Right, Dr. Carson was here for our biblical counseling conference, and he, he, he would always say, you, you can know something has become an idolatrous desire if you're willing to sin against God to go get it, or you, you sin against God when you don't get it. All right, so something has become an idolatrous desire when you're willing to sin against God to go get it. Well, it, it, after he said that, I'm like, duh, it seems so obvious. How come I didn't think about that? So we idolize what God has not been willing to give us in the moment, that pleasure or the, the stroking of the ego or the escape from the pressures of life or, or, or the, the consequence-free indulgence of our own desires. 
these words then, these, these words of flattery, these words of opportunity, the, the, these words that sort of play to our pride, they're dangerous because there's things in our heart that, that, that they play on, things like pride and secret fantasies and the love of illicit pleasure and the folly of thinking that we might engage in that sort of sin without consequence. And so these are the sort of heart-level things that if we're going to walk in, in wisdom, we must seek to put to death the desires of the flesh by the Spirit. That's the way Paul might say it in Romans chapter 8. It's these heart-level desires that we must seek to, to kill the pride, the fantasy, the sinful lust, the desire. So we can't understand temptation. Right? We said we're going to look at this to try to understand the nature of temptation. Okay, so we can't understand temptation without understanding that we are the key player in it. Right? That's why the dad is saying, walk in wisdom. He's not just protesting the adulterous woman outside his house. Right? He's telling his son, guard your heart. We're the key player in it, not the person tempting us. Right? I'm reminded of that famous like Earth Day poster or something back in the day. Now, I'm not making a line about Earth Day. I'm applying this to uh, our own hearts. But Pogo said, we have found the enemy and he is us. Right? That's the sort of humility we need if we're going to approach this fight with sexual temptation. We have found the enemy and he is us. If we're willing to admit that, right? if we're willing to be humble here, then we might be in a position to wisely engage this battle for purity and holiness. Right, so number two is this. Fighting sexual sin with wisdom. Well, let's look at what we're called to put off. All right, I was trying to get the put off and the put on, and that's when I realized, like, we're well over an hour here in my sermon. We better just make it two parts. All right, so next week, I don't want to be out of balance. Next week, we'll look at put on. What does God prescribe for us to fight? Well, in chapter 5, verse, verses 7 through 14, it serves to sort of prod the young man down the path of wisdom by laying out the consequences and the effects of giving himself over to this sort of adultery. Right? The book of Proverbs, as we've seen, is, is quite practical in this way. What Solomon does is he, he unmasks the adulterous woman. He says, yeah, her lips drip honey, her palate is smoother than oil, but, verse 4, in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So what looks like honey is actually bitter, right? I should have saved my sparkling water illustration for this Sunday, but I've already used it. Honey turns out to be wormwood and smooth a, a, a smooth mouth turns out to be a double-edged sword. And that's what he says in verse 4. And then in verses 7 through 14, he kind of teases out, now why, what is the bitter end? What is the hook behind the bait of the adulterous woman? Well, he, he, he sort of, what he does is he kind of takes the, the spotlight and he shines it down the path a little bit further so that he can see some of the bitterness of this, this decision. In the end, the son wants, or the father wants the son to see that what Satan and the world sort of dress up as joy-giving, soul-satisfying indulgence will actually serve to 
harm, and if not repented of, if not turned away from, leave a person facing the just judgment of God when we all must stand before him. And so he begins to list these consequences. And the first one is regret. The first one is regret. Ultimately, the son will wake up and regret his decisions, wishing he would have paid heed to the counsel that was given to him. Look, look at the way he talks there in verse 12. This is at the end of his life. It tells us there in verse 11. In verse 12, And you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So at the end of his life, he's looking back and he's regretting what he has given himself over to. He wished he had paid heed to the counsel that was given him. And in verse 14 there, it has, it has ruined his reputation. Right? He, has no, he has no honor there. What's alluded to in 514 is made really clear in chapter 6, verse 33. He will get wounds of dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. So the public exposure of sin is a, one of the consequences, one of the possible consequences of this. He also says, interestingly, that, that adultery can have financial consequences. We see that there in chapter 5, verse 10. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Right. Also, you might consider Proverbs 29.3, He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. So, again, Proverbs is just truths about life, observations about life. It doesn't mean that this is true of every single person who has fallen into this sin, but you, you know of maybe those who have been blackmailed or those who are living a double life, those who are spending money to not be found out. Right, I heard about a church one time that was paying hush money to a woman to protect their so-called pastor. Right, financial chaos came on the church. They were sued to oblivion. Lawsuits. These can cause financial distress. Right, practically, even in, uh, even in our secular world, like remember when Tiger Woods, who's a pro golfer, it came out that, man, he was like, living a double life, all right? It was bad. He lost millions in revenue, right, in advertising money. Now, I'm, I'm sure Tiger's doing fine, but most of us don't have like 20 million to spare, all right? So what, what, what the father does is he gives us illustration there beginning in verse 29. So is he... You know, he warns that no one can play with fire and not get burned. Verse 29, so is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. None who touch her shall go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. So he gives us this illustration there. Most people are understanding if a person that's about to starve to death steals some bread, right? You don't watch Aladdin and think, that dirty, rotten thief, right? You, you're a little bit sympathetic to Aladdin, okay? 
even though it's wrong, right? Solomon's not saying it's okay to steal as long as circumstances permit. He's, he's actually not saying that. He's saying even that guy, if he gets caught, he's punished. So how much more so the adulterer? The one who is given over to sexual immorality and is exposed is not given the same benefit of the doubt as, is what he's saying, as the thief who steals when he's hungry. He gets wounds and dishonor. One of the other consequences that, that the father lays out before the son, one thing to be mindful of, and this is, again, very, very practical, is you don't want an angry, he's telling his son, you don't want an angry husband after you. You don't want an angry husband after you. Look there in verse 34. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. It sounds, again, it sounds crazy, sounds beyond us to sort of uh, experience that sort of response. But how many Dateline NBCs and 2020 investigations and who murdered who begin with that initial step into adultery? All you true crime fans get it, right? It, it sets in motion these consequences that maybe could not have been foreseen. That would never happen to me. Well, Proverbs here warns us it's a possibility. One author wrote, I was reading his account of finding out that his wife had committed adultery against him with a man that he calls Chad to protect this man's guilt, I guess. I don't know. But he says, he says he wondered how he'd respond in that moment. Would I explode, threaten her with legal vengeance, Take the wooden Louisville slugger from my office and pay Chad a visit. Right? He's kidding, but only kind of. Right? He's, he's, he's teasing out Proverbs 6, 34 and 35. I wanted to go kill that guy is what he's saying. And what Solomon warns of, there's this, this anger that's motivated by jealousy. There's also a, a sense, you, you, you might wonder, what do, you, what do you mean he will accept no compensation? Well, I think this is tied to the old covenant. Um, and I hold this with like 50-50 conviction. So if you disagree with this, that's okay. What I'm, not, not this first line I'm going to say, but the second. The penalty for adultery in the old covenant was death. right? But there seems to be places in, in the old covenant where for death penalty type crimes, there could be compensation and avoid the death penalty. And here's why I say that. Because Numbers specifically says, don't do that for murder. Don't do that for murder. Numbers 35 says, moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. You shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. So if he's saying, don't do that for murder, perhaps, and again, this is why I say I hold this with 51% with conviction, perhaps there are those capital punishments that you could pay a ransom and avoid the penalty. And what seems to be being said here at the end of Proverbs chapter 6 is there's no way that, that husband is going to let you pay the compensation. And you don't get the death penalty. All right. Ultimately, he says in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, 
that, that playing with sexual sin is like playing with fire. You cannot hold coals close to your chest and not get burned. You can't walk on coals and your feet not get scorched. So those are sort of the, the horizontal consequences that the Father just sort of lays out and says, you know, you can make your path straighter by walking in wisdom. But more importantly, then he goes to these vertical consequences. Look, look at chapter 7. Verse 24, And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Right, so we've, we've argued before that Sheol, that, 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 that term for the grave, it can be used multiple ways, right? Oftentimes it, it does just mean the grave, like somebody, somebody has died, right? But in the book of Proverbs, this way of life and this way of death does seem to have this connotation of these paths lead on into eternity, eternal life or eternal death. If you fear God and you turn to Him and you admit your sin and, and, and He makes you alive and, and you begin to walk this path of wisdom, you inherit eternal life. But those who reject God, spurn God, the, the, the consequences of their sin are not only... It's like Adam and Eve, right? If you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. And then they ate. Well, they didn't immediately phys physically die. They were... They began to die physically, but they were immediately separated from God. No life, alienated from the life of God. And that seems to be the connotation of this path leading you down to Sheol. Like all sin, right? sexual sin, if not repented of and forgiven by the Lord, leads to eternal separation from all the kindness and grace and mercy of the Lord. All that's left of the Lord's demonstration towards you if you enter eternity separated from Him is His wrath. And so, I'll talk about this more fully in a minute. But your hope this morning is not just that you can clean up your heart, clean up your online activity, clean up your relationships, See, the warning of Proverbs chapter 7 is that God's judgment is way more comprehensive than that. It's not that you just present the final product. Have I made it far enough, Lord, to sort of earn your grace and mercy? Look how far I've come, Lord. I started here. Now I'm here. God's judgment is far deeper than that. Again, the final product still wouldn't be enough, but it'd be better than what we truly have to do, which is give an account for every deed, every word, everything we've done over the course of our lives. So what we need is something greater than just progress. We need the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You need God's grace to cover your sins, to remove your sins from you as far as the east is from the west, to not treat you according to your sins, but according to His mercy, and, and again, we'll see this more clearly in a moment, this only happens in Christ Jesus. This only happens through His Word. 
And so we want to be mindful that this isn't just, hey, do better. Right? But for the wise person, the one who the, the son seems to be kind of heading down this path of wisdom. He fears God, he loves God. The, the father's trying to keep him from tripping up. For the wise person, the one who fears God, the one who is resting in the grace and mercy of God, the father uses these warnings to sort of press home the point he began in verse 8, which is don't even go near her path. Right? Chapter 5. Verse 8, keep your way far from her. Paul would say it this way in Romans, make no provision for the flesh. This young naive man in chapter 7, he might not even know. He's just put himself in a dangerous, precarious situation. He might not have set out to fall into the sort of sin that he fell into, but he's naive and he sort of put himself in the way of danger. And so Solomon says, don't even take the initial step. Paul gave, um, yeah, make no provision for the flesh. That is to make wise choices. To not even go down the path is to make wise choices to protect yourself from the dangers of sexual sin. Why put yourself in a moment where you're going to be drawn away? Right? Sometimes we call this radical amputation as well. You know, I was in Springfield counseling a man who had an affair with a coworker, and I said, you've got to find a new job. Right? You've got to take big-time steps sometimes to protect yourself. And I'm not, that's, I'm not saying that's law. This is just what this guy needed. Right? Some need to get rid of their smartphone as it simply wields too much temptation or hop off social media if it's too hard not to connect with people you shouldn't be connecting with. You need to cut off all communication with someone. Right? Oh, we're just friends now. No, if you're coming to me for counseling, no, you're not. No, you're not. You make no provision for the flesh. All right, so maybe we can make this application. So maybe we can make, bring points one and two together and make this application. We've been talking a lot about adultery because that's, that's the immediate context of Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7. But we would do well to remember Jesus' words, right? Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. But also, Jesus didn't just like say, okay, that means we don't worry about our lives, right? Jesus actually strengthened the, the demands of the law by saying, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery, right? So we would do well to remember the words of Jesus, that we cannot just seek to, to clean up our outer man, but not worry about our inner man. So here's, here's the application then. Pornography is so enticing because it subtly whispers to you that you can sort of avoid the consequences laid out here while, while having the same sort of thrill and exhilaration that the sinful woman promises. Right? Think about what the, what the woman promised. Flattery. Isn't that part of what makes online illicit material so intriguing? You get to create these fantasies, right? What else did she promise? Pleasure, right? Pleasure without the hard work of loving and finding a spouse. She promised opportunity, right? So you need to beware. Don't be fooled. Don't miss the words of Christ 
it's not the pleasure or the consequence free that we talked about earlier. So look back in chapter 5. Listen to what the man says. And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my, my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So this man, he's facing the harsh consequences of his actions. Right? He's saying, I should have listened to counsel. I should have listened to wisdom. But he's, he's recognizing his son. Right? He sort of reminds me of, of the prodigal son who sort of came to the end of his self. This is towards the end of his life, but he's saying, man, I should have listened to counsel. I should have listened to wisdom. I've come a fo- I'm a long ways off. And the question for you this morning is, are you a long ways off? Are you ensnared in sin? Right When the prodigal turned from his sin, the father ran out to meet him. And the point of the prodigal passage is this, to demonstrate that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And here's what happens to anyone who comes to Christ, admitting their sin, relying on him for their own righteousness, right? 1 Corinthians 6 says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So surely, surely this morning when Jesus peers into our hearts, that that, that he would say the very lusts are sinful adultery, we would say that none of us are completely guiltless, We would say with the psalmist, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If the Lord should mark iniquities, who could stand? None could stand this morning in light of our own hearts. But Paul says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. If you're in Christ this morning, my hope is not to have laid some kind of guilt trip for past sins. Right To beat yourself up over sins that, that, that you have confessed to the Lord, you've come to Him and, and seeking forgiveness to Him, but to point you to the mercy and love found in Christ. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been set apart as holy to God, you've been declared righteous in the sight of God through the work of Jesus Christ our Savior. So if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with things, that sins in the past, know that God says, such were some of you. May those things sort of magnify the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. It's no longer true of you. It's no longer who you are. I love the words that that God spoke to Israel in Isaiah 62. Though they were guilty of spiritual adultery, God promises to act on their behalf and to save them and to delight in them. And he says to them in Isaiah 62, verse 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. That's only true in Christ Jesus. So let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we want to look to Christ. We want to be reminded of his great work on our behalf. Lord God, may we remember that for those who are united to Christ, we're no longer characterized inwardly, outwardly, or in your sight by those sins that used to dominate us. Lord God, may we have wisdom as we seek to live your way in your world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.